Well, hey, and welcome to uh, my very first episode of Foolproof Theology. I'm calling it episode zero because it's kind of an introductory episode. <laughs> and I've got my friend Matt here with me, and he's going to be contributing in this show as well. Um, really, the, the goal of Foolproof Theology is this, that we want to explore strong theological topics from Christian intellectuals to help us navigate uh, really cultural times and, and utilize Christian scholarship. I was talking to a professor a couple weeks ago. And really, I view the people in the academy not as adversaries, um, but as allies in our kind of advancement of the gospel. And they're almost like artillery, where I, I'm, I'm serving kind of on the front lines of ministry as a pastor of a church with Matt. And I need, uh, I need some help from scholarship, from the academy. And so what I want to do in this podcast is basically have conversations with these scholars and with these intellectuals that I'm already having on the phone, and I just want to kind of let you in on those conversations as well. I'm really excited uh, to to hear from Matt uh, today. Um, we're going to hear about his study of patris- patristics and his uh, experience in seminary, um, and you're going to be able to ask questions as we go along. Those questions will pop up for me, and so I'll be able to see them on uh, on the side. So if you've got any questions for me or Matt as we talk, go ahead and ask those, and go ahead and share this with anyone you think might benefit from thinking more deeply about our Christian faith and how we can share the gospel more richly and truly uh, through intellectual scholarship. And for me, this this podcast has been really a long time coming. Um, I've wanted to do something this like this for a while. I feel like I've been entrusted with a lot in terms of relationships and people have invested in me. And so this is kind of my way to steward what God has given me in a way that hopefully is helpful. You know, I'm having conversations with coaches, mentors, theologians, and a lot of times these conversations take the current cultural conversation to a deeper place than uh, social media or or uh, the news will. And so what I want to do is I want to pull from church history and and look at how the church has historically dealt with contentious issues or, or difficult issues. Mm. And I really hope that can help us and inform how we live uh, in our lives today. Think of this conversation as like if you ever went to a pub or a bar with your professor after class and you kind of got the real deal, kind of their, their more unfiltered comments. Um, that's what this podcast is going to be. Um, so yeah, we're going to have podcasts with uh, interviews with basically uh, intellectuals who um, kind of fly under the radar, and at least in my estimation, they're not well known. They're not big names, and uh, it's kind of my. I take. I love the opportunity to promote other people to celebrate what other people are mm-hmm. doing, and so that's what we're going to be doing. The name Foolproof, just to kind of give you the rundown on that, since it is the first kind of episode. The name Foolproof has a kind of a double meaning. Uh, first, I enjoy uh, bourbon. I know Matt does too. Um, it's true. And with bourbon, what you can get oftentimes is you can get a cut of bourbon that is called foolproof, uh, and it's not cut, meaning it's not watered down. Oftentimes, when they barrel the bourbon and then bottle it, what they do is they dilute it so that you and I can enjoy it if you choose to enjoy it. Um, you can enjoy it easier uh, if it's a little watered down. And so the idea is they'll have bottles sometimes that are foolproof, meaning full strength. And what I want to bring to the conversation uh, in our world through this podcast is what I would call foolproof theology, this theology that's not uncut, not watered down. It's not designed to get clicks or likes. It's designed to really share the depths of Christian theology and thinking um, in history. Um, and second, of course, it's a play off the concept of foolproof, meaning something that's uh, not easily twisted into foolish thinking, um, and it doesn't have a lot of foolishness foolishness to it. And so what I want to help us do as people is think deeply and not be fools. I mean, this is all throughout the Bible. We want to be wise people. And so this is an attempt to do that through engaging in deep Christian 
thought. Well, that's kind of the uh, the introduction so far, but I wanted to introduce you to my friend, Matt. Um, Matt's my co-pastor, co-laborer in ministry at The Well in Boulder. We planted The Well together. Uh, he's married to his wife, Ari. They have three kids, wonderful kids, um, and uh, two dogs at this point, um, which is great. <laughs> and I wanted to invite my friend Matt on the show because he's had a really interesting experience in theological education in seminary. It's, it's not something I don't think Matt ever thought would be for him. Um, and that's part of the reason I wanted to bring him on this first episode is as someone who really didn't think the seminary path was for him, he chose to go on it anyways. And so we're going to learn more about that as we go. So Matt, welcome to the episode today. It's good to be on uh, with, uh, you know, my friend and also view our relationship kind of like we're an old married couple. So this should be interesting. It should. And <laughs> hopefully we won't have too many inside jokes. Yeah. And if if you know, then you know. And if you don't, then you don't. Then you're out. <laughs> um, well, what I wanted to start with you on is, um, you know, for you, uh, we've talked about this a lot as far as your journey in, in college or seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, you became a pastor early on. Um, some could say too early in, in terms of age and, <laughs> and, and maturity, but, you know, it is it was the Lord's path for you at the time, and God's been good to you in that. But a lot of people go to seminary in order to become a pastor, in order to get a job in ministry, and yet you already had the job. And so it's kind of counterintuitive for you to do something that seems backwards. So mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, why? what made you choose to go? Like, what inspired you to go to seminary? Why were you interested in doing that? Yeah, I think you're right on in saying I never really imagined that I would go to seminary. Um, I really didn't have a deep desire to do it early on, because like you said, I became a pastor in a church when I was 22. I was still a senior in college in my undergrad. And I think mainly for me, one of the biggest things was um, it seemed scary to me because I'm, I'm not a great student in the classical kind of education format. I went to a school intentionally and, that and picked a degree intentionally that uh, did not have a lot of, uh, let's just say, in classroom education. It was more in the field uh, doing that kind of thing. So the idea of me hunkering down in a library, I knew would be a big struggle for me. And and it was, it was, it was hard for me. Um, I, I, I'm not great at that. I also have a a bit of a minor learning disability that um, makes doing some of that work um, slow for me Mm -hmm. at times um, and can be a little more difficult. So I think that was one main thing. There was a fear. Two was just kind of like, why would I do it? Um, right. You know, I, you know, w- when I did start seminary, that was the question I got a lot from my fellow classmates was, well, I want the job that you have someday and that's why I'm here. So why are you here? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it became apparent really quickly. I actually met with Dr. Winnig before I started seminary. Um, and he was gracious enough to meet with me at the, uh, like student union cafe area at Denver seminary. And I, and I asked him, I said, should I do this? And, um, I respected him and he looked at me and he said, yeah, you probably should. Uh, and I said, why? And he goes, because you probably don't know as much as you think, you know, and this can help you out. And mm. it, it, it and, and then he really sold me, honestly, I know this isn't uh, sexy for a lot of people, but he said, this will make you a more efficient minister. Not mm-hmm. that people are meant to be efficient or anything like that, but what he was talking about was my study of scripture, um, how to break down passages, and even how to counsel people better with um, 
just kind of giving you some more tools that you had. And I was like, okay, I could see how that could be a win. So th- those were some of the main things. That's great. And so already going in, you kind of had this attitude of like, I probably know more or I probably know less than I think I do. Right. Because mm-hmm. Sandra yeah. points that out to you. But you also have yeah. this attitude of like, hey, this is going to make me better to love people and serve people to preach and lead um, mm-hmm. because I won't have to be scrambling. It's going to develop kind of this framework for uh, for an approach to ministry that could be more well-rounded. Yeah. Um, it, it, I also like <laughs> this is kind of hilarious. I bought the Logos Bible software and I realized I didn't even know how to use it. Like I didn't even know what half the things were that were they were talking about. I was like, well, I just spent a bunch of money on this Bible software. I guess I should like, I don't even know how to use a Bible software. What does that say about me? So that was kind of a hilarious thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is funny. I had that same experience with Logos. Um, well, I know that going to seminary for you is something you recently finished. And I'm so proud of you for doing that. Um, you know, I got to be your friend in that. And and uh, just celebrate what God has done in you. And I know our church has been blessed by you going. And and really, I always like to talk about the reality that like for 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 people like you and I, part of the satisfying thing in seminary was that it's not just to serve people and to be better, but like you have kind of a more settledness in your mm-hmm. leadership. Like, hey, like I know who I am in Christ. Um, yeah. I think that's so important. Um, one thing I did want to talk to you about is uh, in theological education, I think you had one uh, class early on. I don't remember <laughs> which class you said it was, but a professor got up and uh, he was he was interacting with a student in class and oh, it I had know something to do with mystery. Yeah. Um, and, and she was like, I think he or she was saying like, you know, it's just a mystery. We really don't know. And your professor said something interesting. And so I wanted you to hear that story from you again. Yeah. So it was a course um, that all Denver Seminary students are required to take um, as one of your first courses. DS 500, um, Thinking Biblically is what it is. I, so okay. that's how much impact it had on me. Uh, yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's taught by a couple professors. But this one, uh, you know, it's, it's very, this is the first semester seminary, right? And sure. they basically said, hey, we want to, I don't, I don't remember the passage. But it's like, basically, we want you to break down this passage. And it was kind of a weird, confusing New Testament passage. And sure. so just get in a small group, break it down, tell us what you think it's saying, you know. Mm-hmm. So each group goes around the room. And, you know, uh, luckily, I think my group was last. So I got to listen to everybody else and realize I'm not going to talk. I-, I learned that in seminary. Uh, <laughs> the, the person who wants to speak the, f- the first, because I got called, I-, I had a professor one time tell me, said, Oh, I just thought you were dumb. I didn't know you wanted to be a heretic. So I learned my lesson. (laughs) I love that stuff. I know some people are like, what? But to me, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be dumb or a heretic. So I'll just listen. (laughs) But but, uh, anyways, yeah. So it comes around in this poor girl, you know, she used a kind of a Christian answer that you hear people say all the time, right? Mm. Which is, well, that's too hard of a passage. Mm. uh, And I don't think we can know what it means. So... I'm just going to let it be a mystery and that's good with me. Mm. And, uh, and, and so, she, and then she used the word, so I think this. And so he said, I'm going to stop you on two things. One, every cult has started with the phrase, I think. Oh man. And he goes, you're a seminarian now. You use uh, orthodox biblical thinking states that. And he said something okay. along those lines. I was like, whoa. Okay. And then, uh, <laughs> and then he goes, and he goes, uh, and he goes, you know what? The truth is, is this. 
I've studied this passage specifically in my area my whole life. I have multiple degrees where I've studied this passage and I have the right to say, I don't know what this means. You're just getting started. You don't, you haven't put in the work and you don't have the right yet to say, I don't know what this means. Wow. And I was just like, Whoa, this is no joke. So yeah, yeah. that's that story. It was, it was kind of a trip. I felt bad for the girl, but sure. Um, you know, at the same time, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, you know, it is what it is. And yeah, so, right. Now, yeah, that's, that sounds intense. I had I had some similar experiences and it can be a really humbling thing. Um, and that's what's ironic about you and I in our seminary experience. I think for a lot of people, when they think about higher education or or Christian thought and thinking is they perceive it to be puffed up. They perceive it to almost be contrary to scripture sometimes and that mm-hmm. knowledge, knowledge can puff up or something like that. In fact, yeah. I've heard seminaries uh as referred to as cemeteries for faith, uh, where mm. people go. And I, I've definitely seen that. I saw people drop out and kind of walk away. Um, mm-hmm. But I know for you in going to seminary, and, and I had the similar experience, it actually produced kind of a deeper faith and more humility. How did, sure. how did going to seminary kind of in your journey and your theological development, how did it produce more uh, a greater sense of humility in how you approach theological and biblical topics? Yeah, it it definitely did that work in me in general. Um, I would say it, it caused me to pause more. I, I guess that would be it. Instead of just um, expecting to know what it means, I would say a big, big thing, and I would attribute a lot of this to uh, Dr. Don Payne at Denver Seminary, uh, but this idea of that we are going to carry our own personal story, our own narrative of the scriptures and our Theological impulses, um, our 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 beliefs are like they're they're formed by our culture, our surroundings, our stories, and that can be great, and that can also be detrimental, for sure. And stories always been a big thing to me because I've had an interesting story leading to becoming a a pastor, and I was like, and I wanted to kind of go, man, I, I think I really need to know the baselines here of where I can operate from. maybe to put it better is I I needed maybe guardrails, right? Because I had experienced early in my uh, faith, I I had been what I would call a full-blown fundamentalist at one point where, you know, I went home from church and all the alcohol that I had, I had to drain it down, you know, like not my throat, but the the drain. Right, Um, right, yeah. um, Dump it down the drain. And then I had another one where I'm wearing like, I, I I want full like kind of what I would call like a liberal version of Christianity where I was mm. wearing like a coexist shirt mm. and teaching a form of universalism. Maybe that's like, I'm like, Oh, sure. so I immediately saw this need for some boundaries for orthodoxy and particularly studying at a, at an institution that doesn't agree all the time with my personal theological beliefs, whether that be reformed theology, um, complementarianism, Sure. My views on alcohol, whatever, you know, right. things like that. So it kind of gave me some guardrails mm. uh, to operate in, but also expanded uh, my thinking about a lot of issues and topics. For sure. And and I think that's really important, too, because I know you, you and I think kind of artistically. We're not like, you know, pure artists or anything, but we're kind of creative <laughs> and we write sermons and, and all that. Mm-hmm. And by having kind of seminary as kind of not only providing guardrails, but almost like um, a garden where it's it's ready to go. It provides an opportunity for growth, and you're not having to go like prove yourself anymore. You're just mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, like 
I kind of have a better appreciation because at Denver Seminary, both you and I experienced a, a wide swath of, of Protestantism. Yeah. Uh, and so it makes you go like, oh, like other people see things differently than me. And I think that's super helpful in producing humility. Yeah. And there's something to be said too about, I enjoyed it at times it, it, it should be kind of a battle. Like we should uh, enter a classroom and be prepared to, to fight, if you will. You know, um, I, I probably wanted that a little bit more than a lot of my classmates or professors at times, but sure. um, you know, as both of us would, but it was kind of, it, it, it's, it, it, I found it to be a safe place to come in and just kind of go, well, honestly, I think that belief is garbage. And I think your theology on that's garbage proved me wrong. Right. And, that makes you better, especially when you get proved wrong. Right. For sure. I remember so I did that with take a look in the mirror. Yeah. I did that with sanctification. I thought I did knew you? everything there was. And then I took a course with a professor. It's like, actually, here's your, here's how you like where your understanding of sanctification is off. And I was just like, and he was completely right. And I was just like, Oh, right. And all of a sudden that, that kind of dissonance that you experience when you, uh, especially with something that we take very seriously, the Bible, and you're going, mm -hmm. man, if I was wrong on that, if I was so <laughs> sure I was right, but if I was wrong on that, gosh, like, you know, maybe I need to be more humble in the way I approach these theological convictions that I've held so tightly. So I think that's a huge help. Yeah. One, one thing that uh, you, there was a class you took that, mm -hmm. that I thought, I think you've articulated, at least to me, that it was the hardest class you took. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was a class on patristics. And so if you're in the, if you're watching now and you want to ask uh, questions, feel free to drop, drop a question because uh, we're going to talk about patristics with Matt. Um, and, uh, and Matt, why don't you go ahead and tell us what is patristics? Yeah, I don't know. Um, that's <laughs> how hard the class was. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh, for just to put it really simply, early church history. Um, how did we develop the theological orthodoxy that we have today through um, the early church? And it's super fascinating. It, there's This is where things like, you know, um, I'm assuming most people watching probably know, um, have heard of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Well, the Trinity is not explicitly in scripture. So where did that come from? Well, that came from the patristic era, you know, mm -hmm. Jesus as the son of God and all that we kind of modernly understand that to be, where did that come from? Well, that came from the Christological controversy that arose during the patristic era. So these were the men and women, quite frankly, that fought really, really hard to really give us the baseline for understanding Christianity as um, we know or don't know it, I guess you could say, because um, yeah. there was a lot of craziness that went on in there. Yeah. So patristics were just the early church uh, how it was formed, and really how we got things like the creeds and all of those sorts of things. Mm. So, if you were to, uh, if someone were to ask you about uh, patristics today and why, like why you would spend time mm. doing that, why why do you think patri the study of patristics? How like how does that affect people's everyday lives today? You're not going to walk into yeah. our favorite uh, taco place, Tiaco, and you're not just going to strike up conversation about patristics. But how Correct. does it inform uh, how you think about our world? Well, let me answer that on two levels. One being a Christian perspective, and then let me just give kind of a missiological uh, perspective of understanding it. 
the Christian perspective is this, is um, one, I see people all the time want to just say, well, the early church did this, so we should do it this way. Mm. And usually that's what they're quoting is the first couple chapters of Acts. Right. Right. And there's a lot more to church history than, than that, as important and huge as that is. So the classic thing that you'll see, I think it, we're seeing more happen more and more, especially during this COVID season where churches are kind of uh, locked down in a, in a weird way and all that kind of stuff. And kind of the home church, you're kind, I'm kind of seeing these, uh, th- these people who, usually go the early church was right and we're all wrong um really kind of uh i want to say it appropriately be very excited because they're like see it says they were in homes and i'm like okay i get and so it's being used as an argument for kind of a local church to no longer gather in a facility or building Mm -hmm. and honestly that's just it's it's bs it's just not an accurate thing a church can gather that way that's how we started our church but to right. say that all of the other forms are wrong would, would be an inaccurate understanding of what even happened in the early church. So yeah, from sure. that perspective, it can give us a more well-rounded understanding of what did early Christians do? What did they think was important? Mm. What, what were the hills to die on? Mm. And, and, and I already mentioned it in the two main hills that you really see in the patristic area, area to die on was Christology and the Trinity. Right. Was understanding those. The gathered church was like an assumed thing. It For wasn't sure. even a battle. Uh, right. And so it looked different. It was a different time. But we we know that in that early era, people were singing songs. They were uh, participating in the Lord's Supper. They were baptizing people. They were right. doing all of these things. And so it really shaped the early church. So that's one side, I would say. I don't know if you want to add anything there. No, I think those are great reflections, you know, and and it reminds me of something we've talked about in ministry is there's this tension in uh, kind of American evangelicalism uh, because we've been so informed by this revivalistic attitude towards church um, Mm -hmm. for what's what's next is best. Um, Mm -hmm. And we've kind of got to like promote a show and like get a lot of numbers up. Um, I think the first time I had this experience with studying patristics that really kind of rocked my world was when we were talking about baptisms. Um, mm. And, and there's nothing, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with how we do baptisms, but I remember studying the early church and what they would do is they would make people go through this long, arduous process <laughs> in order to be, get baptized. And I was yeah. like, how could they do that? You know, how could they withhold baptism from somebody and their point was like, hey, we need to make sure you're a Christian. And I think that could be taken to an extreme that's not good. For but sure. it really helped me understand how the early church really addressed uh, formation and, and growing people and discipling people in faith. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and that is that kind of speaks to the, the missional posture. Um, I think having a well-rounded understanding of patristics is, is really seeing how the church grew. Hmm. And... What were they doing? Well, th- they were suffering greatly. Uh, they were persecuted. Um, they're, you know, the patristic era, depending on who you listen to, it extends different time periods, which would go into the area of where uh, Christianity was kind of accepted in the known world or before. Mm-hmm. But it, it does encompass all of that, you know, and right. to see that the church always had a missional arm to it. 
it, it, it was uniquely evangelistic. And I think it's important to understand that because Judaism inherently is not necessarily evangelistic. Interesting. It's not designed to be that. So that's a pretty big break to be um, evangelistic in its nature. I'm not saying Judy, I don't want to get in trouble and say no, Judaism no, no, has no evangelistic um, right. point to it, but it, that wasn't the primary goal. Right. Whereas Jesus, you know, gives us the great commission and the call to go is very central to the new church. For sure. Absolutely. Now that, that class you took on patristics, I think, was it Professor Fairbairn? Is that his name? Yeah, Dr. Donald Fairbairn. So he's a leading scholar in patristics. Um, yeah. But I think you you took a five-day concentrated class, meaning you went to <laughs> school like eight to five or something, some crazy yeah. schedule for one week, right? It was two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, eight crazy. to five. Um, and then he would randomly start, would he start writing in a different language? What was that like? Yeah. So the, he was probably the most brilliant person I've ever been around. J just to know, if you look up his lectures and stuff, they're really great. And actually his, his like keynote speaking things are much more approachable than his class was. But, uh, and I think that's intentional because he's a smart guy and he understands sure. how to do that, but he's actually deaf as well. And he's a professional at reading lips. Okay. And I wouldn't have known that unless another professor told me. Like that's wow. how crazy it was. He sure. he would just stare at you intently. I was like, wow, this guy's really connected. What he's <laughs> sure. doing is he's reading your lips. So that was one level that kind of uh, that kind of blew my mind. But the other level that was so crazy was he's fluent in I don't even, I don't remember how many language, but also not not only that, but Greek, Hebrew, Latin, Aramaic, and so whatever the text we were studying or original like, and I'm not talking about just biblical text. I'm talking about uh, writings of like Athanasius and people okay. like that, whatever language they would use, he would write all the notes on the board in that language. Oh boy. And he would say stuff like you guys know, right. And we, and there was only eight of us in the class and we'd all look at each other and nod and, <laughs> and, and, and we'd be like, I have no idea what he just wrote up on that board. And then we, but it made it kind of fun. Cause then you, people would come back the next day and be like, okay, I took pictures of the boards and I put it into my logos Bible software. And, uh, I figured out what that means in Greek, you know, and things so like that. Funny. Oh man, it was a trip. So yeah. yeah and, and you didn't do any languages. So you had no, no. uh, no idea, right? None, none. I was like, huh, this is interesting. Yeah, so, I, I think yeah. that goes back to kind of the uh, humility piece. You know, our, part of our job consists of getting up and proclaiming the word of God to people. And mm -hmm. that carries a lot of weight. And you can kind of think like, yeah, I'm, I'm the final determiner of the text that I'm preaching mm. because I've been entrusted with that authority. Then you get put in a class and you're like, I know so little about everything. And mm -hmm. it really produces a humility when you approach the text or approach theological topics uh, that hopefully refines you into somebody who's more approachable, more receptive, yeah. and less prideful of your approach to Scripture. Yeah, just to piggyback off that if I can, yeah. just just yesterday I was meeting with a local church planter, and he's like, I, I've got a man in my church who I do not I do not question his calling to the Lord to be a pastor as he wants mm -hmm. to be. He wants to be an elder in our church. Um, I don't question it, but I am concerned about his doctrinal depth is mm. how you put it. Mm. And he's like, and I'm not sure what to do. And I was like, send him to seminary. And he's like, well, he's a lay guy. I was like, well, does he want to be a pastor? 
And he's like, yeah, I was like, I don't really think it matters if you're lay or paid at that right. point, you know? And he was like, that sounds like a lot, but I mean, wherever you are, most seminaries now have like, I know Denver seminary has, it has a, uh, I, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's a certificate program for, uh, for, for lay, uh, people in the church who want to serve their church more effectively. And it's like five courses and you can take it online or you can do it in person. And I'm just like, and he's like, Oh man, that's a really good idea. I was like, I, I, I sense that tension with us. We've tried to basically write a seminary program yeah. for, for people we want to train, but I'm just like, just send them, you know, it's not that I far know, of a drive. Right? And especially now, obviously you can do everything online, you know, sure. that I was like, that's the, I, I, I'm I'm convinced that it's a, it's a worthwhile thing now, much more than I was before I started. For sure, for sure. Um, kind of wrapping up this topic of patristics. Um, yeah. If if there was anything that you kind of when you study patristics and kind of that in depth thing that you just wish that the church, when you kind of look at the the whether American church or global church, however specific or broad you want to get, what's one thing you kind of wish we would recapture from that patristic era? Uh, whether you're talking about how they dealt with theological controversy or how they're missional, what's one thing you would hope for our, our churches in our modern era to kind of recapture from that time? Yeah, I, I, I think it would be this. It would be this understanding that, I'm trying to, I'm thinking the right word, but that there would be a deep desire to take a hold of what is true and what is right. All the while understanding that your story your culture are going to play into that, but history looking back can inform us going forward. And uh, C.S. Lewis has a great phrase, which he refers to when we look down on everything in the past because it seems simple or they didn't have the technology that we have now. He calls it chronological snobbery. Right. Right. And I see a lot of that in, in the church now where we look back and go, well, we know more now, but I don't know if we do particularly when it comes to theological matter, matters that matter a lot, um, right. like uh, Christology, right? Like that still matters. Right. And these guys, some of them were killed for fighting for their beliefs, you right. know, and, uh, and were willing to lay their lives on the line for a deeper understanding of the Trinity. Like what, right. like that, that's a hard thing for us to imagine. And I see a lot of churches, whether, I mean, if you take both ditches, you take liberal theology, like off the deep end liberal theology, or you take fundamentalism, what you'll see is a lack of understanding there, in all honesty, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Right. And and, um, sadly to say, at least in our context, I would say uh, a lot of the churches that that are um, spread around the West, I think, tend to lean towards well, why does things like Jesus being the son of God even really matter all that much? Right. Right. And that's sad because we have nothing apart from that. And that's Mm -hmm. what, uh, like, if you look at like Gregory or, or uh, Athanasius or all these people, you know, there's a lot that happened there that they went through to really reveal the truth around this. And they thought it was important enough to spend their whole lives on. Mm. And it would be sad if we ignored those realities. For sure. Yeah, we have such a heritage of uh, deep 
theological and, and even philosophical thought in Christianity that we don't pull from, and it could really help us mm. uh, today in how we navigate navigate things. If someone was interested in learning more, just like, I know you have uh, several books that you had to read for that class. Is there one book that you were like, <laughs> hey, like, you know, maybe it's not approachable because it's a translation from Latin, but is there one book that you mm. were like, this is this would be a good example of a, of a patristic era writing or how they thought? Man, all the books I read are pretty uh, hard to read. There's there's a book. Maybe you can help me remember it, Chase. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry, I forgot to grab you're, one. You're but I'm thinking of there's a book that uh, uh, Winnig has everybody read at Denver Seminary about right. the early church. It's the Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. The rise, right? yeah, yeah, the Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. I think that's a great start for sure. Um, you know, there's some other great stuff out there as well. But um, I would honestly, if you really, if you're like want to nerd out, mm. um, man, look up Donald Fairbairn okay. and just some of his lectures. Yeah, uh, he, he they're, they're posted online, and uh, you can you can watch them. Um, and then he he recommends books constantly. Cool. Um, and even his his book on the patristic era is very uh, thick and okay. uh, intense. Um, but if you really want to go deep, um, just look up Donald Fairbairn's book that he wrote. His it, kind of his seminal work on patristics is is available on Amazon and all that stuff too. That's great. Well, while we're talking about kind of how we can catch up on other people as we kind of transition, um, mm-hmm. what about you? You've got uh, you recently started a podcast as part of your uh, your kind of closing out of your seminary experience. What's what's the name of that again? Yeah, don't listen to me with Matt Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> which is great yeah um where can people find that uh it's on apple Podcasts. uh i, I stream it live just like you're doing right now okay. uh it's on youtube okay. it's on stitcher basically if you can find a podcast you can find it because like I've, I've got like nine views you might have to dig a little bit but uh sure but yeah it's it's great it's uh we i bring on people who are experts uh on things that i am not an expert on and right. the whole point is don't listen to me. Listen to what they have to say. That's great. And uh, it, it's a good time. That's awesome, man. Well, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for joining yep. me for kind of my introductory episode. Um, yeah, I'm glad I could be zero for you. Yeah, episode zero, <laughs> like patient zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, well, thank you guys for who are joining us in the chat. Uh, Tim, Travis, Claire, Charles. Uh, it was great to have you kind of chime in as we went along. Um, kind of as we close out, I just wanted to invite you to join me tomorrow. I'm going to be interviewing Dr. David Gustafson from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, which is TEDS, as, as most people would call it, up in Chicago. He's the chair of evangelism and missiology there. And we're going to be talking about contextualization, Leslie Newbegin. What can we learn from people that have navigated contentious cultural times that have gone before us? that maybe could help us navigate how we have conversations about contentious issues today. So that's going to be tomorrow. So I hope you'll join me for that. And this, this will be on a podcast. It'll be a YouTube channel uh, coming soon. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, until then, we will see you hopefully tomorrow. Thanks, Matt. You're welcome, man. Happy to be here.